Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show that focuses on people and organizations making a difference in North Texas. One of those amazing organizations is All Stars Project, Inc. They are transforming the lives of youth and poor communities using the developmental power of performance in partnership with caring adults. Joining us is their vice president and city leader, Antoine Joyce. How are you doing, Antoine? I am great, my man, Chris. I'm good. <laughs> Thank you for having me this morning. It's, it's, I really appreciate it. No worries, no problem. I want a lot of people in Dallas-Fort Worth to, to know all about the All-Stars Project. Can you talk to us about it and how it started? Yeah, so we, we began in New York City. So the All-Stars Project, we have a 40-year history of grassroots organizing and community building in poor neighborhoods nationwide. And, you know, so we've been on the forefront of new efforts to bring people from all racial, economic, and social walks of life together to to engage the the impact of poverty and to create something positive and new together. So, as I said, we we began in New York City, and as the organization grew, we we launched in cities like New York, New Jersey, Jersey City, San Francisco, Chicago, and in 2013, this Brooklyn boy here was tapped on the shoulder, and I said, I want to move to Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) And I came to Dallas, so I'm going to be eight years soon here in Dallas, and I've been loving it. And, yeah, so that's that's, that's, that's our start right there. Okay, Antoine, I want to know how All-Stars happened to pick Dallas, or was that your selection? How much influence did you have over that? Or how did you decide that, okay, you say you wanted to come to Dallas – did they choose you? What was the prerequisite? Well, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll give a little history to that. So, Take your time. Yeah, no problem. So the All-Stars Project, right, so we are privately funded. And I like to put that out because, you know, we in our history have um, not taken any government dollars because we went to people and said, hey, do you believe in supporting young people's development and their growth in their lives? and creating possibility for young people, and, and our supporters said yes. So we're funded by thousands of individuals and foundations and corporations, um, and we have more than 2,500 volunteers nationwide, right? So why that's important is because um, we met a guy on the street in New York City, and how we, um, how we built the organization, we would stand on street corners in New York City mm-hmm. with a card table or go to people's homes. 
And we met a guy named Hunter Hunt. <laughs> so many people in Dallas will know that name. And he was a, a banker at the time, uh, I believe at Morgan Stanley, and he, he kept involved. And that was, again, more than 27 years ago. And as we grew with the organization, our relationship with him grew. And as he returned back home to, to be with his family and to lead his business here in Dallas, he said, this is important work that I would love to have in my city. So we engaged in a conversation. And that's kind of what created this marriage, if you will, of how I got to Dallas. So um, it was Hunter's leadership here and his vision and his support of our programs that, that led me and the organization to make this decision. So was it Hunter decided to pick Dallas? I mean, I was trying to figure out how did Dallas, out of all the different cities, you could it could have been Miami, it could have been Portland, Oregon, it could have been – you know, Phoenix, yeah. Arizona. Yeah, well, yeah. So Hunter, so Hunter, you know, in the Hunt family, you know, his wife Stephanie and uh-huh. his father Ray, you know, they are, you know, Dallas staples. That's know? right. And, and, his, and his brother Clark, and they own the Kansas City Chiefs, the the uh, previous Super Bowl champion before Tom Brady knocked them off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, and uh, and. So, so that relationship with us and Hunter, you know, saying was why we picked Dallas. It was, uh, you know, and again, we, we've had many relationships around the country. Again, our, our six cities, you know, include, you know, New York, New Jersey, Chicago, San Francisco, and Dallas. Um, but we do have relationships with, with friends in other, in other cities of Atlanta and Denver and North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, you know, not officially in about nonprofit, but uh, as friends of ours who saw the importance of youth development and have taken that model and have, you know, increased it in, in, in their area. So, um, but yeah, Dallas was a, it's a great city. To, and let me think about Dallas. Dallas as a large city has many, many of the issues that we all want to fix. Right. Right. Um, Poverty, you know, education attainment, um, racial um, and social injustice, uh, it, wage gaps, um, all all these things that Dallas is saying, we want to be a beacon to this country on how to correct and 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 approach these issues. So that's another reason why we chose Dallas because. It's, it's innovative, it's forward-thinking, and we want to be a part of that story of, of, of taking Dallas to to a level where it could be a national uh, example of how to build a new, new new country. We're talking to Vice President and City Leader Antoine Joyce of the All-Stars Project here in Dallas. And, Antoine, I've done a couple of things with the All-Stars Project, and I enjoy talking to you. And just to pull the curtain back for all of our listeners – I always tell you that you sound exactly like actor-comedian Tracy Morgan because you have that thick New York accent, and it's, it's enjoyable to talk to you. I just, I just get a grin on my face when you speak. Now, you don't look like Tracy Morgan, but you sound just like him. It's that Brooklyn in me, man. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about, about, about accents, right? Because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, when I moved here, yeah. I, heard, I heard a little Southern accent from young people and – so we do grassroots organizing, right? We, right. we we knock on doors in the community to to provide our free after-school development programs to thousands of young people. And so myself and a team of volunteers, we will go into some of the, you know, un- most underserved communities, and we knock on doors. 
and we said, hey, do you want to be part of this talent show? Do you want to be part of the leadership program? So I was in, I was in the Pinks. They call it the Pinks, right? One mm-hmm. of the housing developments down in um, southern Dallas next to Paul Quinn. Mm-hmm. And I asked the young, the young girl, I was like, yeah, you want to be in this talent show? You can sing, dance, rap. You know, and she's like, where are you from? Came for her. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Like, oh, yeah, when I, when I get excited, the Brooklyn comes out, you know, but it was a good conversation. <laughs> it was really funny. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah so, so can you tell us a little bit more about the after-school development programs you guys offer? Can you talk about what they entail? And you mentioned the door knocking and, and uh, maybe a couple of stories here and there beyond the one you just told us about, you know, how you guys have been able to help a few people. Yeah, so – our largest program, which you know, um, which I love, is, is how I grew up in the All Star. So, I'm, so Chris, I'm an alumni of the organization. I don't know if I ever told you that. I grew up no, in our man, program. Yeah, yeah. I was 12 years old when I first discovered um, our programs, and I was in a talent show. But I saw um, first and largest program, so young people can sing, dance, and rap, and step, or you know, cheer um, on stage. We invite the community to come to support everyone on stage. So it's a real big community-engaging event um, because it's not just about your young person. It's about all the young people and supporting them. And, and then we say the other young people, some young people will say, well, I ain't got no talent. Well, you can volunteer and you can perform as the MC, as the stage manager, as the box office liaison, as a greeter. So we have opportunities for everybody to be giving in the All-Stars Talent Show Network. And we do them in community centers or high schools all around the city. And hundreds of people come to create positive community um, of support for their young people. So it's one of my favorite um, programs to do. Um, and, again, we, we reach out to people door-to-door to invite them to that program. Um, our second program is our Development School for Youth program where we partner with the business community to invite young people into corporate um, boardrooms Mm -hmm. and we learn the performance of the corporate world right um so resume writing public speaking uh you know how to dress but also how the world works and for many young people who you know again i'm i'm from brooklyn and i've been to many of these buildings in downtown dallas and I, i i've learned very quickly that our young people will look out their windows or walk out their, their homes in, in areas of Dallas and see downtown. They see the Reunion Tower, see the Bank of America building, but never been inside these buildings. Right. Don't, know, don't have any relationship to people inside these buildings. So we invite them inside these buildings. And my corporate partners like EY, um, KPMG, Bank of Texas, Hunt, um, you know, uh, um, uh, many of them, I'm, I'm blanking on. <laughs> sure, but you got a whole lot of relations, corporate relations, and and you know, you're, they're able to find out what it's like to be involved on these levels because they never assume it's possible, right? Yeah, no, exactly, and and it creates again it builds community because one, you, many of my supporters like my like my one of my co-chairs on my board, Greg Arnold of of TAC, um, the Arnold Companies. Um, he says all the time, Antoine, I get so much more out of working with these young people than I think I give to them, right? And he has a beautiful office in the Crescent Club. And when these young people pull up to the Crescent, it's like, wow, what is this? And we go to the to the you know to the top of the floor and we look outside and look at Dallas. And 
he teaches them about his businesses, about energy, mm-hmm. about about transportation with 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 his with air, right, and 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 providing those opportunities for thousands of people across across Texas. And the young people learn. They ask him questions. Well, how does this work? How does that work? And they get excited and inspired. It sparks the desire to learn more. So it even supports how they think about well, what I want for my life. And wow. how do I get it? Why well, I go back to school? Mm-hmm. I got I got to look at that math class a little differently because Greg Arnold said this is important to get to that dream to be an entrepreneur, to work in this environment, to be an IT engineer, or um, whatever they want to be. Is All Stars Project based upon their grades? What are some of the things that they have to do to become a part of All Stars Project? And I love it because again, there's a lot of kids. After school, they have nothing to do. You know, they, they, like you said, they may not even be athletic, so they don't have after school football or, or even p- pick up basketball or things, and they might wind up in trouble. So how do they get involved with All-Star Project? Are there grade requirements? What, what does it take? So, so thank you, Chris. That, that's a great question. So we reach out to ordinary kids, ordinary kids, not just the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. We reach out to families. Again, as I mentioned, members of the community, business leaders, people from all walks of life. So the entry to being a part of the North Stars program is just showing up. Wow. If if we meet you on a street corner or at your home or at a school or at an after-school program, you know, again, just walking through the community and we say, be a part of this program, this is the time to show up for an audition or an interview, and you show up, you're in the program. You also like to talk about, you know, the performance uh, development and how that was one aspect of the uh, programs that you offer. Can you talk about how performance can be a tool to help kids develop? Yes. And that's, that's been important for our growth, um, Chris. And it's, I'll give philosophical for is, a second, is it, right? Is it confidence? Is it, it's, it's, it's confidence and more, right? Mm-hmm. So think about it, right? We all have different stages that we are on in life, right? So I, I, I often tell the young people, when you're in school, you have a performance that you do with your school, with your teacher or with the principal, right? Mm-hmm. When, you, when you go to church, your mama teaches you that there's a performance in church, right? You pray, yeah. you yell, you shout, right? <laughs> and sometimes when you're in the community, you have a different performance too. And I grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, right? Mm-hmm. And Sometimes there had to be performance of being tough because that's what it meant to survive. But again, when you go to corporate America, when you're at a museum, when you're at a park, when you go to a when you go to a show, there's all different performances that happen there, right? And so we're teaching young people that just like you see performing on stage like an actor or a role, right? Mm-hmm. You can create new performances for yourself on every stage that you want, right? right? You can have more tools in your life. So because here's the thing about, about the limitations of poverty, right? Sometimes you only learn one performance. And you get to a new stage and you realize that the that the, this character I have doesn't work in this environment. Yeah. And it limits you from, from achieving. So we're helping young people create new characters. New, so that's the tool. You can you can turn that tool on anytime you want. So I can be on a radio show with you right now, mm-hmm. and I can still walk into Oak Cliff and have a conversation with a young person, or I can go to a gala mm-hmm. or to a into a boardroom. They're all Antoine Joyce, 
but I have different performances in every stage that I'm on. It's called adapting to different environments, right? There you go. That's, that's, that's another way to put it. Exactly. And you teach a lot of these kids this because, again, a lot of them have no idea of the opportunities that they have. And once they see it's real, they respond. Can you talk about the response you've been receiving from the kids over the years? It, uh, that's, thank you, Chris. I mean, so we, we, again, we began our programs here in September 2013. And I, I, I love telling this story about one of my first students. I, I met him in West Dallas, um, Pinkston High School. Mm-hmm. And we, West Dallas? My, yeah, there you go. You know, and, and I, was, I was doing my very first talent show. It was the first program I bought here. And I said, hey, do you want to be in a talent show? And like, like I told you, he goes, I don't have any talent. What else can I do? So I said, do you know anything about sound? He goes, maybe. And... He's like, okay, I'll show up. So he showed up as a volunteer and ran the sound. At my very first talent show, we had 50 people there in West Dallas in, 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 the, in the multi-purpose center, right off of Singleton. Mm-hmm. Years later, he joined our Development School for You program, had an internship in the, in, in the energy sector. The owner of the company says, you impressed us so much as just how much you wanted to learn. If you go to college and get a get a even an associate's degree, I want you to come back and apply for a job. This young man has now been working in that at that organization for the last four years. Wow, that's fantastic. Right. And then his mother came up to me years later and said, when she had him and her kids, she had to drop out of high school. She's like, he inspired me to go back to get my GED. Wow. And that's... That, that, and I, I got so many stories. I mean, Chris, one of my another one of my other first students, she called me up two years ago. She now works with the Park and Rec, and she says, "Antoine, I'm, I'm I, I you know I have my first child, and I got this job now, and you've always believed in me." And you know, she's a student from South Oak Cliff. She's like, "You never gave up on us, and you pushed us to be the best." I said, "Okay, so what do you need? How can I help you?" She's like, "I've now been tapped to run a program." that's being sponsored by Best Buy, and I want to give the young people that I'm working with here in South Dallas what you gave me. How do I do that? Help me create some internship partnerships and so forth. And I'm like, yes, but (laughs) but that's what we're doing, right? Yeah, paying it forward. Paying it forward. That is amazing. I know you've got so many stories. They create more opportunity. I, I want you to tell us some more stories, but I want to remind everybody this is Better Living, and we're talking with Vice President and City Leader Antoine Joyce of the All Stars Project, who do a lot of after after school development programs for uh, for youth who don't have the opportunities out there. Um, one of the the projects you've got going on now is is Operation Conversation with cops and kids. Can you shed some light on that particular particular uh, uh, development program? Yes, and uh, and I'm proud to announce even a new a, a new initiative that we have created during the during our virtual um, work and during the pandemic. But so um, in 2005, just to give you a a small history, our co-founder, Dr. Lenore Falani, created Operation Conversation Cops and Kids in New York. Mm -hmm. And we've since grown this program um, to Newark, New Jersey as well, where, again, using performance, we build relationships between young people and police officers. 
as you know, I mean, I don't have to recount all that happened in a year. Mm-hmm. It's been a hard year mm-hmm. this past year. And the community has, you know, a lot of distrust of our, of our institution. And our police have a lot, of, a lot of work that has to be done internally and externally to, to repair relationships, right? Right. But it's both of us. Mm-hmm. We have to, we, the police and the young people are in those communities every day. When the news cameras are off, when, when the politicians are back at home, mm-hmm. these young people and these police officers are there face-to-face every single day. So we have to think about the relationships that we create with each other and who each other are. So Cops and Kids was born to create some, a, a new performance for each other. When we see each other in the street, who are we to each other? Who are we, period, right? Mm-hmm. And you will hear in these workshops that we have um, that young people say, I just want to get home. And the officer would say, I just want to get home. The officer would say, I just have my first child. And the young person would go, wow, I never thought about you as a father. <laughs> right? Right. They start to see each other and hear each other and build on, the, on those relationships. So that's the program. And here in Dallas, We've we've taken you know tenants of that and and built our program our relationship with the Dallas Police Department for the last five years around our community work and the talent shows. So our police officer partners they join us in the community and they knock on doors. And I always I always laugh that the, the young people will say, "We're going to do the knocking because you, you, you knock like a police officer." <laughs> Everybody's going to run. <laughs> right. Oh, no, it's the cops. <laughs> right. And, and, and I tell you, Chris, when, when somebody opens the door and what they see is, and we do this intentionally, right? They mm-hmm. see a police officer in uniform, a young teenager, you know, they may see a white volunteer or, you know, a black Hispanic volunteer, and they open the door and they're going, what is this? Yeah, what's going on here? Right, because this is not normal, right? No. And we're like, hi, we want to invite you to be part of an after-school development program. And they go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> right. Tell me more, right. It changes that dynamic, and they're like, and, they, and you hear them like, there's an officer at the door, but they're with people, and they, and, and they appreciate, they start to appreciate this effort of reaching out to them directly, and it changes that relationship. We want to be part of helping change the relationship between our community and our police officers, and it's a long way to go. Um, and then the young, the police officers, they support the talent show, so they're in the audience applauding. Sure. They're helping bring props on stage. They're greeting people, and they're saying, welcome to this talent show. Whenever have you walked into a building where a police officer welcomes you inside, right? Mm-hmm. So that's part of the work that we're doing here in, in Dallas. And then off of that, off of those, those experiences, my CEO and I, Gabrielle Carlander, we've created a virtual program that we just call simply Operation Conversation to okay. address a lot what we say today the divide in America, right, mm-hmm. around social injustice is. And what we've learned is there's a study that the New York Times had put out that one in five white Americans 
say they've never found themselves in diverse environments. One in five. Mm. And we started to see from from some pilot workshops that people don't hate each other per se. They just don't know each other. Then, yeah. You know, we're, yeah. we're not in enough diverse environments. So Dallas is a diverse community, but we sort of sit in very homogenized, you know, um, settings. Right. People so, just are afraid of what they don't know. And then they find out, wait a minute, we have more in common than we thought. Correct. So, so virtually we've been bringing groups of people together, diverse groupings, and having conversations around race, around social injustice, around equity, um, around a whole bunch of issues, um, and just learning from each other and asking each other questions. And we do it, again, with performance. So you know, Gabrielle and I, we lead, if you will, we create a divide to play, right? Mm-hmm. So we have different aspects where we ask people to have a conversation about an issue, and we will randomly pick someone to talk about this topic, and you might get chosen to, to talk about a topic that you actually believe the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, for instance, a topic that has been, you know, that has been in the front lines for a while was defunding the police, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a white cast member, we call them cast members, mm-hmm. and we say, and, and by random, you got chosen to you say, I support defunding the police. And everyone looks to go, what are they going to say? Right, right. <laughs> right? And you find and, out that people have to explain the misconceptions, and all of a sudden, the misconception becomes a better understanding, and you learn it in a different kind of way. Correct, correct, correct. I love it. And people sit there, and they go, wow, I never, I, you know, it really helped me listen to the other side of the argument of why this is, uh, you know, and, 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 and even, you know, we, we talked about Confederate monuments, right? And again, mm-hmm. a black person being casted to protecting say, the monument, you know, right? Protect the monuments, right? And you're like, wow, this, I've never thought about it this way. Right. And, and, and this and is again, great. This I, is we're clever. Not trying to ch- right. We're not trying to change people's minds or, but we want people to be together to hear how another person thinks about something, how they, what, why is it important to them? So that when you're in an environment, you say you have a place to start with. In improv, they say, yes, and. Mm-hmm. You have to have a place to start with, yes. How do I build with you? I got to build, I got to start somewhere where I can say yes to you in order to build and grow with you. We're talking with Antoine Joyce, the uh, vice president and city leader of All Stars Project here in Dallas. You know, every time I've talked to different um, organizations and and people who are running the organizations or a part of the different organizations over the last calendar year, we always talk about how the pandemic affected them and what they were trying to achieve. Can you talk about what the pandemic was like for the All-Stars Project, some of the uh, things you were able to get through, some of the things that uh, you were not able to do, and were you able to make what the new normal pivot was? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm excited that, you know, going virtual um, during the pandemic has helped us reach more people than ever. Um, we were able to increase the number of young people that 
that participate in our program in different areas. So again, we're the all-star. I, I, I work in Dallas. That's also probably of Dallas. Mm-hmm. But we have new partners uh, who say, well, can you, can you extend out your programs to kids in Fort Worth? Can you extend your programs to kids in Houston, you know, DeSoto? And we say, yes, we can, right? So we can get young people on a Zoom together there and we go. can still provide development opportunities that are critical it's a critical component of addressing poverty and moving our country ahead. So um, it's been a great aspect in that. And as we call ourselves All-Stars One Team across the country, we were able to, you know, even break the barriers of our six cities. So um, in next week, we're starting a six-week program of our development school for youth with over 200 young people from over 40 different cities. Amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And this during a pandemic, again, you found out how to maximize your efforts through the through, through going virtual. I guess some of these kids are going to school virtually anyway, so this is the way to reach some of these kids and families, you know, after school. Correct. Correct. Let alone bring some people who wanted to be involved, corporate partners, business professionals, who may not have been able to go to the function that you had set up, but they do have the time and the opportunity to do it on a Zoom. Exactly, and and still be connected to young people's lives. We have a another program, development coaching, where adults can work with young people for six weeks and helping them, you know, in their lives developmentally. And we have young people in Dallas connecting with CEOs in New York. And we have New York, you know, uh, uh, supporters working with young people in San Francisco. So we're crisscrossing the country, and, and I'm, I'm hearing so much great feedback from young people. They're like, thank you for, for you know, not giving up on us and continuing to open up our doors and our worldview, um, giving us opportunity to just, you know, to lead. This is a great, great organization. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people listening might be thinking, how can I get involved? What can we do? We're talking about corporate partners, business professionals, uh, even some of the, the families of kids who have nothing to do after schools, you know, in lower income fa- households and volunteers. What do they need to do? How can they do it? And where can they reach the All-Stars Projects in Dallas? Awesome. Well, thank you again. And please, everyone, so easy. Allstars.org. Flores. Forward slash join. But I'll say it again all stars, that's what I S, dot org, forward slash join. So even if you just go to allstars.org, you, you'll, you'll figure it out. You can support, you can donate financially. Obviously, we are in our profit, so all donations at any level, any level is impactful. But I will say again, please give, but forward slash join. You can get involved in our programs directly in, in, in a young person's life. You can give an hour. You can give 10 hours. You can volunteer with me and create me help some more programs. Allstar.org forward slash join. Please join. We are now joined by Dr. W. Marvin Delaney, Deputy Director, COO of the African American Museum here in Dallas. How are you doing, Dr. I'm Delaney? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine, Chris. Or, or perhaps I should just call you Marvin since we go way back. <laughs> yes, you just call me Marvel, please. <laughs> well, that'll work. You know, a lot of people have heard about the African American Museum of Dallas, but a lot of people haven't been by yet. Can you kind of share with our listeners uh, the history? We're just going to casually stroll through through our, our memory 
and talk about the history of how Dr. Robinson brought the African-American Museum to Dallas. Sure. Uh, the museum started at Bishop College, which, is, as you know, it no longer exists. Right. Uh, it was started in 1974, and Dr. Robinson started it at the Zell Library at Bishop College. And then it sort of separated itself out of Bishop. It became, in fact, it was a, the Southwest Arts and History Center. And then it became the Museum of African American Life and Culture in 1979. Uh, then it moved from Bishop to, to Fair Park. It mm-hmm. was in the Magnolia Lounge for about, a, about three years. Then finally in 1980, no, 1991, they broke ground to build the building in Fair Park, in which the museum uh, cur- currently occupies. And so it's been in the building in Fair Park since November 1993. And again, it's expanded from being just sort of a, a institute that focused on art to one now that does uh, basically art and history. And in fact, the name has been shortened since we opened in November of 1993 to the African American Museum. You know, it's impressive for those who don't know, you kind of downplayed this. The facility is awesome. I think Dr. Robinson said it was a $7 million building when it was first built. Yes, yes. Oh, it is awesome. Um, Again, we have uh, five galleries. We have two kitchens. uh, We have an education center. We have a 100-seat auditorium. So basically the building is state-of-the-art. Oh, and of course I failed to mention we have a um, an archives area and a library, and in fact, overall the building's about forty nine thousand square feet. So, as I said, when people come, they will definitely be impressed. Uh, we're on three levels, and one of the things that happens at our building all of the time is that people want to have weddings. Ah, we yes, awesome, you know, stairway. You know, that's really beautiful. And and all the brides want to come down that stairwell. So <laughs> it's sort of interesting. Uh, it, they even come in sometimes and shoot video before they do the actual wedding. <laughs> it is a, an amazing facility. And uh, for people who haven't had a chance to, it's a great tour. And, again, it's, it's kind of a big secret. It's right there at Fair Park. But a lot of people have heard about it but haven't been over there. Can you talk about some of the tours that have been available? Because I know that uh, – School groups have been able to, to tour the facility and learn things. Sure. You know, we've had an ongoing relationship with the Dallas Independent School District where social studies and history teachers had, before the pandemic, would, of course, bring their classes to tour the building and see the various exhibits that we have, which, by the way, we have two perma- three permanent exhibits. Excuse me, two permanent exhibits. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the gallery sort of rotate and we bring in different uh, exhibitions all of the time. So every time we do a new exhibit, we reach out to the Dallas Independent School District. Been trying to, we, we also have been trying to reach Duncanville, Plano, and some of the other, uh, DeSoto, mm-hmm. some of the other districts in the area. But students come and learn about art. Uh, we have actually have camps in the summer. Uh, we're in the process of working with a couple of education groups to do um, what they call after-school programs. And so so we're working on uh, basically trying to expand uh, what we've traditionally done at the African American Museum. So, um, as I said, we the pandemic has shut us down 
uh, for about five months. Right. And so we're uh, we closed it last March, and now we're in the process of of reopening. So you say, yeah, the the pandemic has affected the way people have a chance to enjoy the museum, and so you're ramping things up again. Yeah, we we uh, reopened as I said in September of of, of last year, mm-hmm. and so what we had to do though it was social distancing is, and small groups, yes, take temperatures, and also. Uh, um, have people sign in the test station. Right. And of course, they haven't been in contact with anybody with the uh, the COVID. Mm-hmm. In addition, we're doing most of our programs online. We've done uh, a summer camp, actually two summer camps. We've done a couple classes. And then most of all of our Black History Month programs were online. So, like I said, we've really had to adjust and change our strategy in terms of reaching out to the community. We are talking with Dr. Marvin Delaney, the Deputy, Deputy Director, COO of the African American Museum in Dallas, located in Fair Park. Uh, before we get back to the pandemic and how, you know, the word everybody uses is pivot, how you've had to readjust things and refocus and, and expand how you do business. Could you talk about, I think, the location of the African American Museum is so outstanding because it's right there in Fair Park. And I'm sure during the fair, you have so many people getting to learn so many different things by having a chance to stroll through there. Yes, like you said, we are in Fair Park, uh, right off of Grand and uh, Al Lipscomb Boulevard and Gate 5. Mm-hmm. And indeed, we we get overwhelmed with people during the, the state fair. And particularly what we've done, though, is we've tried, we've tried to do major exhibitions during the state fair. For example, um, we did one on um, Thomas Jefferson and slavery Mm -hmm. uh, two years ago. And then a year ago, we did the Kinsey Collection, which is one of the major art and history collections about African-Americans. And so... I had had a chance to go out there for that. That was awesome. Yeah. Did you come to the uh, reception? Yes, I did. I sure did. Okay. I I met the family. Met the family. Yes, met the family. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, again, when you get my age, everything just sort of runs together. (laughs) And I I, I told you, I was thinking way back, I guess, the early 90s when um, uh, She's Got a Habit came out and uh, and I saw you there. Right, Spike Lee. (laughs) Well, you know what? Again, I think it's so centrally located at Fair Park because of the state fair. And people from all over the state of Texas have a chance to come through. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. what's impressive because... You have so many things there that people don't even realize. Right, right. Um, we're getting ready to open a major exhibit this week called The Color of Money, which looks at the image of African Americans on Confederate currency, or in fact, when you just say the image of enslaved African Americans on Confederate currency. Uh-huh. Uh, an artist by the name of John Jones out of Columbia, South Carolina, was a collector of Confederate dollar bills. And he started looking at them with a micro, um, uh, what is it, a microscope, and he saw all these images of, of black people working in the cotton fields hmm. on this currency. So he, he's an artist, so he decided to do, he did 120 paintings looking at these, uh, using the images from, from these dollar bills and created this exhibit that, as I said, they will open at the museum this co- co- com- coming week, as a matter of fact. 
And I think it's going to be there through July, so it's must-see if you get the opportunity, right? Yes, it'll be there through July. Uh-huh. You also have uh, some other exhibitions coming through beginning this month, uh, including The Tears We Weaponized and Devalued and Reconciled, and The mm-hmm. Dynasty, The Peculiar Search for Totality, featuring mm-hmm. artist uh, Missy Burton. Yes, yes. Yeah, those are two really powerful exhibits, and we, we're, and we primarily have opened them this month because, as you know, this is Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. And so the Tears exhibit looks at the contrast between how people deal with the tears of white women versus the tears of black women. You know, the, the tears of white women it literally have caused white men to go out and murder black people, okay? And I'll mm-hmm. just put it out there. Whereas the tears of black women are, you know, are basically ignored and devalued in the sense of no one pays attention to it. And, you know, when their children, is, when their children are killed, mm-hmm. uh, when they themselves are harmed, you know, so no one acts on it like they do or, and as they, they have done in terms of acting on the tears of white women when allegedly they've been insulted or, you know, or uh, abused. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting exhibit. And again, I hope people will come out and see it because it actually features the works of both black and white women in terms of looking at tears, you know, the tears of women and how people react to them. Uh, Missy Burton's exhibit is also really nice. Um, she incorporates a story of an African family, of course, captured in, in the slave trade, but how they struggled to free themselves from slavery and indeed become uh, a whole family, a, a, a positive working family mm-hmm. in spite of the impression that they suffered uh, in enslavement. So, again, both of those exhibits are out there. We have both of those exhibits uh, in honor of uh, Women's History Month. And fortunately, you're going to keep them around through the summer. Uh, the Dynasty for Missy Elliott, Missy Burton, I said Missy Elliott, Missy Burton, is going to be there through June, and The mm-hmm. Tears will be there through July. You yeah. also have performances from time to time. Can you talk about some of the performances that have taken place at the Amer- African American Museum? Because, you know, one of the things about arts and humanities mm-hmm. is that people like to see musical or even yeah. dramatic performances. Uh-huh. Well, you know, one of the things we've done, of course, uh, we, we, we do a week before the pandemic. You know, I guess that's sure. going to become BP eventually. Right. But before the pandemic, you know, we would do jazz under the dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first Friday of, of every month. And uh, we're trying to, we, we're hoping to get back to that, at least by the fall. Then, of course, we bring in the Boys Choir of Harlem every, um, I think that's every spring. And, of course, they, they do a major performance at the African American Museum. We do a jazz concert also in, in the fall. Um, that, again, it's uh, one of the major things that we, we do in terms of fundraising. And, of course, you know, one of our biggest fundraising efforts is the Texas Black Radio. Rodeo. <laughs> Call it the radio. The rodeo. <laughs> yes, the Texas <laughs> and, Black and Rodeo. We do that around Juneteenth every year. Right. Um, we have uh, all these sort of performances and programs that people can come in and enjoy and listen and, and learn about African-American culture here in our, in our country. We're talking with Dr. Marvin Delaney the Deputy Director and COO of the African American Museum in Dallas, and you mentioned the Texas Black Rodeo. You mm-hmm. also house and curate 
the Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame, and I was honored in 2017 yes. to be inducted. Uh-huh. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about the uh, Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame? And, again, I'm so flattered and honored to be the uh, first journalist inducted. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, we started the Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame uh, in 1996. So, as you see, it's been going on for about 20, uh, 28 years now, excuse me, 26 years. And basically, we, we focus on trying to recognize some of the African-American living legends here, here Chris, yeah. um, that have been, you know, that have come out of Texas or been born with the universities and colleges here in Texas, as well as, of course, those who uh, played for the Cowboys and the, the, the Mavericks and and, and again, various sport, uh, colleges and universities here in the state of Texas. You know, we have two tall Jones. Um, Eric Dickerson. Uh, we have Orlando Blackman. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all, all those legends. And George that, Foreman. George Foreman, yes. In fact, George Foreman is a sponsor or has been a sponsor of the Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame, making an annual donation to it. So, yeah, it's really special. I think we're up to about 120 people now. Mm-hmm. We're in the Texas Black Sport to Hall of Fame since, again, it's been around for 26 years at, at this point. We named some of the bigger names. What I also love about the Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame is it houses so many hidden figures, some of the greatest sports figures mm-hmm. in Texas mm-hmm. history. You know, they may have not have yeah. been a national name, or they right. may have done some things. Because I didn't know they were from Texas. And so it's uh-huh. also a place where a lot of hidden figures are as well, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, uh-huh. area to, of the museum to visit. Yeah, uh, and then and you know we do an annual luncheon uh, where we induct new members. Of course, as you said, hidden figures. I guess Robert, Coach Robert Hughes from Fort Worth wouldn't be a hidden figure per se. He, but, he isn't now, but guess what? He was back yeah. in the day. For those yeah, who don't know, Coach Hughes was the most, he has the most victories in boys' high school basketball in uh-huh. United States uh-huh. history. And just a couple of years ago, he was finally inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. But he's been in the mm-hmm. Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame for years. Yes, yes, he has. And, of course, um, I, I can't name any women off the top of my head, but we have about 10 15% of the inductees have been women in the Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame. A lot of yeah. golfers and a lot of track stars. Yeah. And tennis fact, players. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And I was just saying, uh, it's just an amazing, it's amazing uh, display. And, I, again, I encourage a lot of people to make their way out there to just to mm-hmm. check that part out if you love sports because the history of, of Texas sports is not complete without all yeah, of the black exactly. sports figures who made a name for uh-huh. themselves, whether it's coaching or athletics, the whole exactly. nine yards. Yeah, there are a number of people, you know, who coached in the Prairie View mm-hmm. uh, inter, interscholastic league who are indeed part of the, the Texas Sports Black Hall of Fame, or Texas Black Sports Hall of Fame, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. outstanding. Now, now, yeah. Dr. Dr. Dunlavey, uh, D- Delaney, we talked mm-hmm. about how we've been kind of knowing each other all these years. Can you tell us about how you got involved with the African American Museum and how long <laughs> you've been a part of it? Well, uh, I started, well, I came to Texas in 1981 from Ohio. I went to Ohio State University, by the way. Oh, you didn't and, say the Ohio State, do you? You mean <laughs> the same school that cranked out a lot of big names? Yeah. Like Ezekiel uh-huh. Elliott? <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Rod Gerald. Oh, yeah. Right, right here yeah. in Oak Cliff. Right, yeah. Yes, indeed. So 
I came here in 81, and uh, then I started teaching at UTA in 1985-86, and I saw this ad that Dr. Robinson had put in the Post and Courier, excuse me, the Dallas Post Tribune, mm-hmm. and uh, was, was sort of intrigued. And so January of 86, I went to Bishop College, found the museum down in the basement of the Vale Library, and by the way, for those who don't know, Bishop College is now Paul Quinn College. Yes, yes. They've so changed campuses. They still have the Zell Library, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I started uh, mainly just sort of working with a clipping trial, you know, where you clip newspapers on specific topics. And what the museum was doing was clipping newspapers about, you know, blacks here in Dallas and Fort Worth and in Texas and creating sort of like a file that people could come in and use if they were looking for it. Again, specific information on African-Americans. Well, um, the next thing I know, Dr. Robinson had me working on an exhibit, uh, had me teaching a class. Uh, I think we taught the class at St. Luke. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, doing a whole host of things. I did the Black History Camps in the summer. We did a quiz bowl for high school students and middle school students. We did an annual Black History Fair. And then I think the crowning achievement was in 1989, we started what was called the Texas African American History Conference, mm-hmm. uh, which was a statewide conference that brought in scholars and teachers and students from all across the state. We ran that for six years before I left and went to uh, Charleston for about 14 years. But so, so that's not, so I got this long history. I went to Charleston for 14 years and came back in 2008 and again started volunteering at the African American Museum. Again, okay, because as I said, it's a very special place, and I enjoy my work there, and um, I like the fact that we can do so much in terms of teaching history, mm-hmm. doing art exhibitions as well as history exhibitions, and preserving African American history here in uh, North Texas. As I mentioned, the archives, we've got uh, about sixty archival collections, and we have, for example, we have the A. Macy O. Smith collection. I don't know whether people will know who that is. I hope they do because his name is on a building downtown. And, of course, there's a high school uh, that was named for him. So, And I think we, there's a chunk of the highway, too. Yes, yes, there is. And so, so again, uh, I started in 86, uh, took a 14-year hiatus to, to direct my own museum, by the way, in mm-hmm. Charleston, then came back in 2008, and as I said, been Overall, you could say I've been volunteering for the museum for almost 40 years. Yeah. That is outstanding. Now, we've, we've all through this conversation, we've mentioned Dr. Harry Robinson. Can you uh, share with our listeners the greatness of the, the founder of the African American Museum mm-hmm. of Dallas? He is a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I really enjoy our friendship with him as well. But people need to yeah. know something about him. Yeah, Dr. Harry Robinson is a, a visionary. He went to Southern and then got a, a library, a degree in library science at Illinois. Uh, he's been the only uh, director and CEO of the African American Museum. As I said, he started it in 74 and has been w- with it till this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people were, really want to know more about him, they can actually go to um, the museum's website, www.aamdallas.org. And they'll see that there's a short uh, history there, well, actually about a four or five page history about the museum. And of course, it highlights all of the things that Dr. Robinson has done for the museum to move it forward, 
to keep it open. I don't, uh, most people don't know you got to raise a lot of money. Yes, you do. To maintain a, maintain a museum, and 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 I remember in I think '89 there was an article in the um, a profile of Dr. Robinson in the Dallas Morning News, and, they, and the one thing the the art the um, reporter said was, if when Dr. Robinson comes around, hold on to your checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he's a sweet talker. He really is. In fact, you've got a lot of wonderful corporate partnerships that help you guys see you through some of the tough times, including the the Trammell Crow family. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, we do. And uh, Toyota and uh, was Encore, mm-hmm. uh, just a whole host of us supporters that have helped again to to keep the doors open to sponsor some of our major programs and indeed make this information and make this really unique experience available to, to people throughout North Texas and, of course, throughout the country if they come to Dallas. And so, yeah, these, these partnerships with the corporate sponsors like Encore, like Toyota, like um, J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, and and the Trammell Crow family has been really beneficial to, to the African-American Museum. Now, we mentioned the pandemic. Uh, 2020 was a tough year for a lot of people. Can you talk about, you know, the pivot, the effects that you guys had to change some things up? And like you, you mentioned, you were shut down for a few months and reopened in September. But can you talk about, like, it was a year ago and how things just changed? Right. Well, the the main thing that has happened, well, two things. One we used to be open five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday. So we had to reduce the days of the, of the week. We're only open three days now, Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 12 to 5, mainly because we're trying to avoid, you know, unfortunately, being open a whole lot and, and spreading potentially sure. this epidemic, this pandemic. So, uh, so that's the main thing. We're only open three days a week. Uh, then secondly, we have moved any program that would be nested that would usually be face-to-face to online. Um, mm-hmm. if you, you, you got the schedule that I sent you, and you see that all those programs, those, those lectures, mm-hmm. uh, are being done by Zoom. And, and so we, we've had to sort of develop a, an online presence. Part of what we've done in terms of uh, making that happen was improving our website putting more information on the website, uh, making sure that it was accessible and that we also updated it on a regular basis rather than, you know, sometimes a website will sit two or three months before you change it. But now we, we try to change it and update it on a weekly basis. So those are the two major things. We, we're open less. We can't do major programs in the building because we're trying to protect the people's lives. And, of course, we've moved a lot of our programming online and we're going to sort of continue that presence. You know, we're going to sell sell books and things mm-hmm. from our gift shop online. Uh, and as I said, we're going to do just a whole host of programming. Uh, we're going to put some of our art and history collection online so that so that we can market it and, and license it to different organizations if they want to say make a, a T-shirt of a painting that we have in our collection. So so again. It's been a major change because it used to be, and you know that you know the expression. You always were, were trying to get butts in the seats, right? The foot traffic, you know, to, yeah. yes, to get the people in the building. Mm-hmm. Now we've had to sort of de-emphasize that because of this pandemic, 
and move uh, again a lot of our programming and a lot of our community outreach to a, to an o- online and basically to our website. We've been knowing this, and we've been saying it on the show that um, the African American Museum in Dallas is like a jewel because mm-hmm. again, it's in a seven million dollar building, which is outstanding. You guys run the program so well, the exhibits, the lectures, the, all the, the different archives that are there. There's a collection of African-American museums around the country. Mm-hmm. Are you guys interconnected, intertwined? I know there's some kind of relationship. Can you talk about yes. the different ones in different cities? Because I know a lot of the exhibits go from different museums to different museums. Uh-huh. Uh, we are part of the African-American uh, Museum Association, okay. which, by the way, actually met here in 1995. Uh, and again, it's a, uh, sort of like a consortium of African-American museums. Mm-hmm. And we, indeed, like you just said, share exhibitions. Uh, I'm thinking back, there was an a, uh, a exhibit called Egyptian Symbols, uh, Animals in the Egyptian history and culture, and we shared that. In fact, we had that in the museum when we opened in 1993. We're actually getting ready to do another one, I guess it will be this fall or early next year, about African-American men and, you know, their experiences and their history and culture and their position in, a, in, a, in American society. And that's coming out of the African-American Museum Association. So, yes, we, we share exhibits, we share information, we try to indeed um, write grants and fundraise as, as a part of a consortium, uh, especially, again, if it's an exhibit or a program that can go from one mu- or travel to one museum to the other. So, yes, with, that is part of um, what we try to do in terms of being a part of the African American Museum Association. Very nice, which brings me to the newest African American Museum, and that is the national one in Washington, D.C., <laughs> Um, I had a pleasure of going out there and the mm-hmm. lines and you have to make a reservation because it is actually the most popular museum or display out there on the mall. I mean, it's part of the Smithsonian Institute, but I believe uh-huh. I think Oprah put in like 20 million and uh-huh. uh, billionaire Robert Smith here from Texas. He put yeah. in another yeah. 20 billion. I mean, 20 million. Uh-huh. It's, an, it's an amazing experience. And I know yeah, you've probably been there yourself. Four times. <laughs> My goodness, you must have the hookup because you can't get in that building. Everybody uh, goes there. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I actually joined uh, the African American Museum or the Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. when before, you know, it was actually built. Okay. So I was a charter member. And, yes, I just sort of, sort of have a hookup. Uh, Lonnie Bunch, who, you know, who raised all that money over 10 years and mm-hmm. put his life in, in it. So is a good personal friend. Uh, last February, for example, he was actually here uh, selling his his book. Toyota had the, him at their headquarters up in uh, Plano, and so you know I got a chance to talk to him and uh, got him to sign my book. He wrote this book called A Fool's Errand, uh, talking about his experience putting that museum together. Because basically, basically everybody said you're a fool. Yeah, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. Yeah. Yes. So, and now uh, it is please. like the premier. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the premier uh, spot on mm-hmm. on the uh, on the Washington Mall. I mean, seriously, yes. people yes. go there yes. or they try to get in there. The buses and people uh-huh. from all over the world. You you literally have to go world. online and get reservations uh-huh. months exactly. out. It's like exactly. it's like almost trying to get a reservation for a Broadway play. 
Yeah, it's packed all of the time. Here locally, like I mentioned before, the African American Museum of Dallas is a crown jewel of one of the best in the country. And if you wanted to be a part of this organization or if you wanted to donate or know more about it, how can people find out about the African-American Again, Museum the, of Dallas? Uh, I mentioned the website, um, you know, being very cognizant now about the need for funding on our homepage. Uh, again, at www.aamdallas.org, you'll see a red box up in the right corner which allows you to donate. Then if you go down to the bottom of the homepage, you can actually join in as a member of the museum. Memberships range from $25 all the way up to $10,000. Dr. Marvin Delaney, it's been a pleasure again re-hooking up with you. I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Well, Chris, thank you for inviting me and and, and allowing me to to tell people about the African-American Museum. We must do it again, and I'll see you real soon, okay? Okay, then. Take care. All right. I'm Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thanks for joining me. Tune in next week as we focus on other organizations doing great things in our community right here on Better Living. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.